Well, good morning, church family. We're in the third message in the Servant King series in the Gospel of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 3 as we talk about the clash, the crowds, and the chosen. This is beginning to be a theme in the Gospel of Mark of this clash between uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus, and it's really quite remarkable that he goes back to the synagogue after the way he's been treated and questioned in the synagogue, it, it was just really an act of grace that he was gracious enough to go back and give them another opportunity to hear what he had to say and to let them see that he was the fulfillment of all the promises of Messiah. He, he's already had four recorded conflicts with these Pharisees over forgiveness, over him eating with sinners, over fasting, and over Sabbath rules. And every time they want to get into debate, have you ever noticed how religious people, and I'm talking about religious people, not real believers, I'm just talking about people that are addicted to religion. Have you ever noticed that they just want to argue? Have you ever noticed that people want to argue about the differences between denominations. They, they, they never want to talk about what can we agree on. They want to talk about what do we not agree on and why are you wrong? And so here's Jesus. He's debating with them. He's arguing with them, if you will. And every time he's winning the argument, but they're not listening. So they have gathered. I just picture them in the front row seats just waiting to jump on him. And here we are in chapter 3 and verse 1. He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him, watching Jesus, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They weren't watching so they could rejoice that this man's withered hand would be healed. They're, they want to trap Jesus. And he said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began to conspire with the Herodians. Now that's a big deal, which we'll talk about in just a minute. They conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So let's look, first of all, at the clash in verses 1 through 6. Jesus heals this man with the withered hand. The Greek indicates that some illness had taken the strength out of his hand and made him crippled in his hand, which would have probably meant it was difficult for him to do any work. Jesus knew that healing on the Sabbath was considered work by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that he would be criticized. Now here's something that amazes me about Jesus at this moment in his ministry. This man's life was not in danger. He, he didn't have to heal him in this synagogue service. He could have easily just called the man forward and said, 
hey, it's the Sabbath. Meet me at Simon Peter's house first thing in the morning, and I'm going to heal your withered hand. He could have done that and avoided the conflict. But Jesus is intentionally allowing these conflicts to show the difference between man-made, works-centered, rules-oriented religion and the gospel of grace. These Pharisees live by rules and by making up rules. In fact, I think the Pharisees were the inventors of warning labels. You, you ever watch these commercials and they tell you, hey, you can take this drug, but it, it, it may cause this, 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 this. And there's, somebody's talking 100 miles an hour, and the last thing he says, and it could lead to death. I mean, the, the Pharisees invented warning labels. Don't do this. It could cause this. It could do this. It could do that. I, and so I just got to thinking about it, and I looked at some warning labels. Let me just give you a few to tell you how crazy warning labels can be. There's an ammonia window cleaner, and it says, do not spray in your eyes. That, that would seem to be obvious. Here's another one. An electric wood drill. This product is not intended for use as a dental drill. I'm sorry. If I meet anybody that's going to Lowe's to get a drill to do dental work, I want a social distance from those people. I mean, really. Third one, sleeping pills may cause drowsiness. Well, I certainly hope so. Warning labels are crazies. The command to keep the Sabbath was not meant to be a thumb on people or meant to be a burden. It says they were looking for ways to question and oppose Jesus. They were looking for ways to accuse him, to bring formal charges against him. Now, over the last several months, uh, Stephanie Bennett and I and, and Kay Dunn Robinson have been working on getting Ron's book, Surviving Friendly Fire, back in print. And we have a publisher, and we're going through the final edits, and we're going to get that book back in print. That book is about being wounded in the house of my friends and wounded by the hand of Saul. And Ron first preached that when he was here at Sherwood a number of years ago, and then I was privileged to help him gather some resources and some research to put that book together. But as we were working on getting it back in print, we decided to add some stories. And so in about 12 or 13 of the chapters, there are stories of pastors who have been wounded in churches. Now, I realize that pastors have wounded churches and churches have wounded pastors. I understand that. But when you're in my position and 50 men are leaving the ministry a day, every day of the year, somebody has to address that problem. Here's the common thread in all 12 of those stories. It's something like this. It's worded something like this. And these are anonymous stories from people that I know or knew about that contributed their story without revealing names. Here's the common thread. They wanted to run the church. A handful of people wanted to keep me from leading. Those kind of statements about how we're going to do this church is the way we want to do it. 
We don't care what God says. We don't care what the role of a pastor is biblically. We want to run the church our way. Can I tell you something? 2,000 years later, they're still with us. They were with Jesus. Listen, these folks would have been unhappy with Jesus as their pastor. And Jesus brings to a head to show the difference between worldly, fleshly religion and Christ-centered, God-glorifying Christianity. So they're having this conflict. Now, I, I can remember a number of times when this has happened to me through the years, either when I was in youth ministry or, or when I was in the pastorate. These, these Pharisees and Herodians don't mix. They would not mix. The Pharisees were keepers of the law. The Herodians were followers of Herod. And this is no casual comment. Enemies are coming together not to try to discredit Jesus, but to destroy him. These enemies are becoming friends because they have a common enemy. The book of Proverbs even talks about that. Let's look at the crowds. Verses 7 through 12. So there's this conflict over this man with a withered hand, and Jesus withdrew to the sea, verse 7, with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Adumia, and from beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, and a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Now, if you just took a map and laid that out, all those regions that these people are coming to Capernaum and to the Sea of Galilee, it pieces together the size of the land at the time of Israel's greatest expansion under Solomon. So people from the former kingdom gathered, just flooded into this small community. Verses 9 through 22, this is a fast-paced record of what was going on. In fact, the word and is used 63 times. And this, and that. And it's like immediately. I mean, Mark is just writing as fast as he can. The multitudes are coming. The momentum is building. So what does Jesus do? Does he rent a tent and buy a sound system and, and have a big crusade? No. He withdraws, which shows you that he was God. Because our flesh would be fed by crowds coming to see us and by crowds gathering. I mean, the bigger the crowd, the more we get jazzed about that. I mean, right now, I'm really jazzed because Garrett's in this message with Terry, so I've actually doubled the crowd from the last message. I mean, who knows what could happen? By next week. So Jesus withdraws. Look at verse 9. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready. In, in other words, it's like this. Go crank the car. I'll be there in just a minute. Go get the boat ready because when I get there, I want to push off from the shore. But, so he wanted this boat ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him or literally crush him for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them 
not to tell who he was. They're crowding. You, you, you see this a lot in the gospel, that the crowds come until the demands of discipleship really start being drawn out. You know, there's a difference between a crowd and a congregation. A crowd will come for a big event. A crowd will come for a conference, for a concert, for a healing, for food. But a congregation gathers because they're facing the cross. They know what's at stake. They've given their lives to Jesus. They've sold out to him. That's the difference between a crowd and a congregation. And so Jesus has been healing all of these people. The crowds have been growing. He hardly breathe because of the number of people around him. And so what does he do? He pivots in chapter 3 because the emphasis is beginning to be on the healing. And so he pivots because he came to preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. He came to preach what John had preached. He was the fulfillment of what John had preached. And so he adjusted. This problem with the crowd was they just wanted an experience. They didn't really want a savior. They didn't want a Lord. They just wanted an experience. They, they didn't really want to hear a sermon. I, I saw a survey the other day that, that people would really like sermons to be 15 minutes or less. Uh, I don't know how you get past the introduction in 15 minutes or less. I, I, I mean, you certainly couldn't get an elementary, middle school, or high school education with a 15-minute lecture or lesson on each subject a day? How in the world can we learn the Word of God with minimizing the amount of time we spend reading and studying the Word of God? You see, there are too many preachers that judge their success by the size of their crowd. They judge it, they're, they're quick to brag about their numbers. They're quick to say we had more this year than last year and their popularity of their preaching. And if you're not careful, whether you are a layman or an ordained minister, you will water down the word to draw a crowd. I, I'm not talking about not being offensive. The word of God is offensive, but it also brings light. But there are people that are fearful of preaching the truth. There are people that are fearful of talking about the demands of discipleship. And the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more he talks about discipleship. They're fearful of offending certain members. They're fearful of losing members to another church. I love what J. Oswald Sanders says here. He calls this the peril of leadership. The peril of leadership is you're not going to keep everybody or attract everybody if you're a good leader. A good leader draws lines and makes people decide, are they going to go? Are they going to stay? Are they going to leave? Thirdly, there's the chosen, verses 13 through 35. Jesus goes off to be alone. Now just put yourself in this situation. He's got all these people. He's healed all these people. I mean, what a time to take an offering. But he leaves, and he goes off by himself. But he just doesn't go off by himself and sit down on a rock and say, man, these people have worn me out. 
he goes off and he prays, and while he's praying, he chooses his 12 disciples, the ones that will share the responsibility, the ones that he will pour his life into. These will be the pivotal leaders of the gospel after his ascension. In your note sheet, which you can find on our webpage or on the app, in the note sheet, there's a quote by Carl F.H. Henry, who is a phenomenal, was a phenomenal theologian. But I love the way he says this. God is the greatest gambler in human history. He bet the future of our redemption upon a carpenter and his small band of fishermen. God gambled on us by becoming all man while staying all God and walked among us and invested his life in a handful of people and said, this is the future. I mean, when he chose these disciples, this was the future of the church. We go back 2,000 years to a handful of people and the women and others who followed him who were his disciples all the way through until his ascension. Look at verses 13 through 19. Jesus calls his disciples and notice that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. What is the first priority of a disciple? That they would be with him. The first priority was not to go out and preach. The first priority was to be with him so that they would know what to preach when they went out. And so the first is to be with him, listen and learn. The core of discipleship is becoming like the one you follow. Ephesians 5.1 talks about being imitators of God. So in verses 14 and 15, they have this threefold task if they're going to be his disciples. To be with Jesus, to witness for Jesus, and to offer people the opportunity to come to Jesus. In the rabbinical and Greek tradition, a disciple simply sat and memorized whatever the rabbi or the teacher said. It was just learning rote memory until they could repeat verbatim what the teacher or the rabbi had said. They would just sit and memorize, and then they would get disciples, and their disciples would sit and memorize, and they would get disciples, and their disciples would sit and memorize. Jesus had a different method as a rabbi. He taught them, but he expected them to live out what he taught. Not just talk about it, but to do it. He called them out, and he chose them, and basically said to them, you're going to be the tip of the spear. When the kingdom of God begins to storm the gates of hell, you're the front runners. You're the tip of the spear. I'm always amazed, always amazed by who he called. These were not the prestigious people. They were not the, the upper echelon people. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were common people. They lived from paycheck to paycheck. They were mostly blue-collar kind of people. But God called them. Now, just think of the comparison here. God called 
Moses up to a mountain to give him the law. And God called Jesus to go to a mountain and call his disciples. Just a thought. It was a divine appointment. Let me tell you four things here. First of all, he called them out. Out of all the people that were following, the, the curious, the, the ones that had been healed, of, uh, of the different people we've already looked at in the Gospel of Mark, out of all the people, he called these out specifically by name. Secondly, he taught them personally. He taught them personally. They were sitting at his feet. They heard his words. They heard his parables. And in a message to come, we're going to look at how Jesus used parables. Thirdly, he tested them by experiences. So he taught them, and then he tested them. There was the lecture, and then there was the lab. Did they learn from the lecture? And then he sent them out with authority. He sent them out with authority, not in their name, but in his name. This, this group of people, and as I was working on this, I realized our statement that hangs in our atrium proves true in these disciples. Prayer leads us to love God, to grow together, to serve others, and to change the world. In a prayer environment, Jesus called the disciples who would love him, who would grow together, who would serve others, and would be the catalyst to change the world. Now, they did not understand everything they were getting into because you, you see the sporadic responses. You know, let's go to Jerusalem. Jesus says, it's not my time. Then when Jesus says, it's, not, it's, it's my time, they say, we shouldn't go. They're going to kill you. But at this point, they knew enough to know what, the, know what they were getting into. They knew enough that Jesus had put the cards on the table. They knew that there was growing opposition. They knew that the crowd was fickle. They knew that the Pharisees hated him. And they joined up anyway. Years ago, I mean years ago, I wrote down a checklist for measuring my discipleship. How should I measure my life as a disciple? And I came up with seven things. Number one, what I want the most. What is it that I want the most? Is what I want the most to love God with all my heart and love my neighbors myself? Secondly, what I think about the most. What I think about the most. What do I think about the most? My finances, my car, my house, my kids. My, my family, or do I, do I find myself thinking, Lord, how do you want me to think about these things? Number three, how I use my money. How I use my money. Is my money available to the master for him to use it however he wants to? Number four, how I use my time. How I use my time. Do, do I redeem the time? that God has given me? Do I waste time? And, and hey, I've wasted time in my life. I mean, Terry and I have talked, you know, we've got cable and, and we've got Disney Plus and, and we can sit there for 30 minutes going, I don't know, doesn't look like anything worth watching tonight. I mean, all of us do that. 
But we do have to, if we want to be disciples of Jesus, have to ask ourselves, how do I use my time? Next one, who do I spend time with? Who am I spending time with? Who do I like to spend time with? Do I spend time with people that pull me down or people that lift me up? Number six, what makes me laugh? What makes me laugh? I mean, dirty humor doesn't make me laugh. People making fools out of themselves doesn't make me laugh. What makes me laugh? What kind of jokes do I like? What kind of entertainment? What makes me laugh? And lastly, and this is a big one, what breaks my heart? What is it that breaks my heart? You see, for everyone that's going to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to come up with your questions and your measures of how you view yourself as a disciple and just see where you are at any given point on a list like this. Now, in your notes, it says some within his family didn't get it, verse 21 and verses 31 through 35. Uh, and when he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent, they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. His own family thought he had lost his mind. Can I tell you something? Don't be surprised if you sell out to Jesus Christ that old friends and some of your family members will think you have lost your mind. If you choose to follow Jesus and to walk with Jesus and obey Jesus, to love him more than father, mother, brother, or sister, and yes, even than your own life, that's Luke chapter 14. If you choose to live that life, you're going to have family members who are going to think you've lost your mind. You've lost your senses. I mean, Jesus has left the family business. He's gone out on this wandering preacher. He doesn't have a board. He doesn't have any way to make money. He's at odds with the establishment. He's made friends with tax collectors and sinners. But as I was thinking about this, I got to thinking about people that I have watched through my life that have lost their senses over lesser things. Sports, hobbies, careers. I mean, they, lose their, they just lose all rational thinking over lesser things, over politics. I mean, they're, they're just getting a fist fight with somebody over politics. Listen, politics is not going to matter two milliseconds after you're dead. Why do we lose our minds over politics when it doesn't matter who's in the White House or in the outhouse, everybody is stinking up the place? I mean, we just got to admit, if you're going to be accused of losing your senses, be accused of doing it for Jesus. It's like an old illustration I used when I was in youth ministry about the old sandwich boards, you know, the they used to have these people walk, walk the streets and they would advertise delis and restaurants and, and they had a sign on the front and a sign on the back. And this guy walked down the streets of New York and on the front of the sign it said, I'm a fool for Jesus. And on the back of the sign it said, whose fool are you? If I'm going to be called foolish, I want to be foolish for Jesus. Not for religion, 
but for Jesus. Then look in your notes. Some within the religious establishment didn't get it. Verses 22 through 30. Now these leaders assume that Jesus and Satan are partners. Imagine how dead their religion is. They assume Jesus and Satan are partners. Beelzebub, that Hebrew word means the master of the house or the Lord of filth. He was the chief of the demons in Jewish demonology. He was a Philistine deity. And so in verse 23, Jesus tells this parable. He exposes their faulty logic and their bad theology. He says to them, if my power is by the power of Satan, then Satan's fighting himself. I mean, what Jesus is saying, look, you guys don't even make any sense. Satan's not going to fight himself. Satan would never oppose himself and use Jesus to cast out demons. That makes no sense at all. Ray Steadman said today, I love this quote, we hear about people who go around binding Satan. There is only one who can bind the devil, and he has already done it. Jesus has bound the devil. He's defeated everything we fear, death and hell and the grave. Verse 27, but this is an eternal principle in verse 27. But no man can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus here is proclaiming his power over Satan. I've gone into the house and I bound him. He has no authority over me. I have authority over him. Jerry Vines made this great statement. That power was bound when Jesus confronted the devil in the wilderness temptation. It was commenced there. It was continued at the cross, and it will be consummated when he comes again. So now we come down to the end here. In verses 28 through 30, Jesus warns them that they've crossed a line. And he uses this word blasphemy, to insult, to show contempt, blasphemy, to fail to reverence, blasphemy, contemptuous speech against God or sacred things. By the way, this same charge was leveled at Jesus at his trial. What was the blasphemy? They were ascribing to Jesus the works of the devil. And that attitude was so hateful and so destructive. Remember, they're out to destroy him. That they have removed themselves from the possibility of forgiveness. They have so hardened their hearts, like Pharaoh hardened his heart. They have so hardened their hearts that they will not repent and acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is. Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary on Mark, says this, Sin becomes unpardonable when the guilty one rejects the path that leads to pardon, continues in rebellion, and refuses to bow in submission before God. 
So we're talking about the unpardonable sin, which has been misinterpreted in so many ways. So let me give you the best definition I've found on the unpardonable sin. It is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is the perversion of the heart which chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. I want to read it again. It's on the screen, but I want, you, I want to read it again. The unpardonable sin is the ongoing continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is the perversion of the heart which chooses to call light, darkness, and darkness, light. You see, here's the thing. If you're listening right now and something is prodding your heart, that's the Holy Spirit of God who's convicting of sin and judgment and of righteousness. He's probing your heart for you to receive forgiveness from the Heavenly Father because of the death of His Son on a cross. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, which means you haven't crossed that line yet. But the more we reject the still, small voice of the Spirit, either through people or through the Bible or through circumstances, the more we fail to listen, the more we harden our hearts, and the more the Father's voice gets further and further away from us because God never forces himself on anybody. The unpardonable sin is the rejection of Jesus Christ as your only way to get to God. And calling darkness light, which means, by the way, if I don't believe that Jesus is the light of the world, then I've called him darkness. If I don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then I've called him a detour, a dead end. He's not truth, he's a lie. Then what I've done is I've said that Jesus is like Satan. I want to appeal to you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, would you look at that section at the bottom of the screen and would you listen in just a moment when we talk about the next steps and would you give us the opportunity to tell you how you can have a relationship with Jesus. Don't find yourself, by the way, all these Pharisees, they had religion, they went to the synagogue every time the doors were open, they offered all the sacrifices, they had memorized the first five books of the law, but when God showed up in front of them, they said, that's not God. All of them are in hell today because they rejected the fulfillment of everything they said that they believed. You see, quite honestly, you can go to hell from a church pew. You can believe all the right things, but have never asked Jesus to come into your heart. Jesus did not die to make you religious. He died 
to live inside of you to make you more and more like him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use your word and this message to speak to the hearts of those who are listening and that we would respond accordingly in Jesus' name. Amen.